0: Well, I think we were washing the dishes. I was washing the dishes and he was drying. And he would, you know, leave the towel for a moment and talk to me with his arm wrapped around my waist, you know. Or just mention, oh, you know, I've missed you so much, baby, in the middle of the conversation. And I'm like, dude, we're in talks about talks. We're not, this is not actually where we were. And he got so mad, I'll never forget what he said. And he says, the problem with you young radical women, I think... Along those lines, was that you've been infected by white feminism, and white feminism criminalizes the black body, the black male body on site. And I was like, "Brad, just don't touch me. I'm not your girlfriend."
1: Huh.
0: You know, but that conversation did not end well at all. You know. Welcome to episode
1: ten of Are We Our Work. I'm Tiffany Ibrahim. Are We Our Work is a platform for peer exchange that gathers and shares people's career experiences across different professional networks in South Africa. In this episode, Zwanaka Neshifulan comes to terms with the conflicted relationship she holds with her religion and the law. Zwanaka is a legal researcher at the Constitutional Court of South Africa. I'm wondering how you
0: understand the intersection between gender and the law. That's such a hard question. Because one of the big assumptions that people come to the law with is that it's free of human interference, that it's just this really cool, uh, cool set of objective systems and rules put in place by magical beings who are just completely objective and unaffected by their lives or their histories or their experiences. And, and that it, it, is, it is wise and good for all perpetuity and should not be tampered with or changed. Whereas laws have very powerful social and normative force. You know, if you legalize something or, or criminalize something, you give, you give it a normative value, you give it a normative standard. You know? If you legislate that people of particular races are inferior... Over time, people start to believe that, whether it's right or wrong. South Africa is still grappling with those ideas today. The changing of the laws didn't go along with the changing of societal attitudes. When the laws were written, they were very ignorant of the realities and the lived realities and experiences of the majority of South African citizens. And in many ways now, there's sometimes a massive gap between what the law says and what people still believe and hold to be true. And so sometimes the law is great and it changes things and it protects people and it creates a springboard from which to protect rights or a basis or a normative. But that does not always align with the views and ideas and beliefs that people have. So I think the law is great, but I think it only gets up to and until people's doorsteps. And beyond that, people make decisions about what they want in their homes. And South Africans are very fierce about their privacy and about the decisions that they should be allowed to make in their homes as husbands or as wives or as parents towards their children. Um, So you don't always see beliefs and understandings or law translating necessarily into the kind of social shifts that you need to create the society that the law envisages itself. So So I'm from the school of thought that thinks that the law is very limited and that more work should be done from norm-setting institutions, like schools, like churches, like communities, like families, to then change attitudes so that no matter what the law says or how the law is changed and altered over time, that people are able to meet the law where it is. It's only great if someone decides to challenge it, and that's the limitation of it. The law must be met by a person and the person must carry it and take it to a forum where the forum is able to make decisions, and then go back and then personally enforce that decision for their own sake. That's that's sort of the start of the process. There's so many more pushes, there's so many more levels of activism that must then happen there afterwards to make the law a reality, particularly when it comes to gender.
1: Why are women's rights so important to you, and why is
0: the relationship between the law and women's rights important to you? I, th- I think when you grow up in a church, you begin to realize how important your gender is and how much it affects. Um, a few years ago, the Adventist church had a conversation or a policy vote coming up about whether or not women should be ordained into full-time gospel ministry. This was years after other churches had started talking about it and had passed resolutions on it. That conversation was extremely difficult, extremely divisive, very polarizing, and extremely emotional. Um, And for me, it exposed a lot of people that I had previously thought of as, you know, pillars of reason and rationality and objectivity and oracles of God's word and God's law as very afraid, misogynistic, narrow-minded people who were not always operating from a place of saying objectively this is what the law says or this is what our policy as a church says but more out of a place of saying as an African man this is how I was raised and I will not tolerate being preached at by a woman or by a girl. So I I realized most sharply uh, during the ordination conversation that my gender matters quite a bit and The opportunities, the platforms and the voice that I have access to in religious spaces matters quite a bit. There's a lot of suppression of the natural gifts or abilities of women in a way that does not compute or add up to the way that our society sees it. So you have women who are, who have been empowered in terms of BEE laws or empowerment laws or employment equity laws and are CEOs, but who come to church and can't be treasurers because they're women, or who come to church and can't be, can't sit on decision-making bodies because they're women, you know. So you have a church that is not harnessing the full intellectual potential that it has within its church member group, you know um and I thought it there's, there's there's the the understandings of how our country works when it comes to law and the way that my church operates uh are not the same and increasingly I think a lot of these views are informed by people who just don't know if they then insist. You think that? You think people just don't? Know- sometimes, sometimes. But I was about to add a qualifier to that and say that if sometimes, if, if you persist, then, then I know that you're malicious. If you keep bringing something to someone's attention and they insist that that's not the way that it works, then at least you know that you're dealing with somebody who's malicious. But I think we should at least try to eliminate ignorance and the lack of awareness and a lack of knowledge from the picture as well. What does religion mean to you? Purpose. Religion means I know why I'm here, I know what I'm here to do, and it guides everything else that I do. It guides the way I perform my work, it guides my relationships with people, it guides the way that I dress, it guides the way that I present myself, it guides my social calendar, the things that I can and can't attend, it guides my diet, the things that I can and can't eat, it guides my finances, um, the things that I can and can't spend money on, it gives it gives you purpose. It gives you a way to to prioritize and to say this is the thing that's most important and all other things must be subsidiary to that.
1: Do you at times feel resentful towards your religion?
0: I do. I do. I do. Sometimes I think it's hard to figure out. Sometimes I think it's not a religion that is friendly towards black people. Sometimes I think it's a religion that is extremely hostile to women and obviously will be more hostile to black women as a result. Um,
1: In what ways is it hostile towards women?
0: If you look at the Bible, there are many people who do very horrible things to women and not, not nothing really happens to them. And if you look at most churches today, the overwhelming majority of clerical workers, pastors, commissioned uh, members of the church, bishops the most senior members of the clergy, decision makers, policy makers, are men. And they make policies, because they're human, that ultimately make sure that their interests are protected at the end of the day. It's an extremely patriarchal environment, you know, where the ultimate form of realization or self-actualization is for you to be a married wife. And if you don't behave, you'll never be married, and you'll never be fully legitimate and a full participant of the church. Extremely sexist.
1: So why are you still, in light of everything that you've said, why are you still so deeply devoted to your
0: religion? Because I don't think... uh, I was about to give you a very glib answer and ignore the the last three, four years of spiritual crisis that I've been in. Um, Those are questions I've asked myself many times. Um, It would be dishonest to say that I find it easy. Um... Find what easy? Find religion easy and find explaining why I'm still religious easy. There have been many times I've considered just agnosticism to say, you know, there might be a God, there might not be a God, I don't know. And to live my life that way. Uh, The time period where I I wasn't reading my Bible, wasn't going to church, you know. Um, But I'm devoted for several reasons. One, uh, my social circle. Um, are all Christians my worldview for the last 30 years has very much been dominated and ruled by Christianity my family is very devout if I were to step away from my faith I don't even know, I think they would know how to begin to relate with me uh, but I think the deepest reason is that I don't believe that what I hear from the pulpit is always who God is. And I think when I read the Bible, I find very often in some of the most surprising places a book that is about the human condition, that is about a, a deity who had a dream and a hope for people, and that dream and hope didn't work out. And a deity who responds in ways that are surprisingly emotional and human. And I enjoy that vulnerability. And I don't always believe that he is the slavery-justifying, woman-bashing, black people-hating person that he's made out to be. And the most important thing for me, if I ever leave the faith, God willing I don't, is to leave extremely short that I made the right call. And I'm not going to be able to make that call by just listening to what other people have to say about it. And because those people aren't objective. And they have their own views and they have their own feelings and are protecting their own interests. Because that's what humans do. Is there place for you? Is there a place for you in your religion? I'm going to make one. Um, I feel very comfortable there. I feel very at home there. I understand the language. I understand the code. I understand the way that people understand it and engage with it and and appreciate it. It's a place where I feel very comfortable in many ways. Um, But I I think my passion for gender justice is much bigger in religious spaces than it is in the law. In many ways, I think the law will ultimately take care of itself. Or, you know, someone will burn down the union buildings at some point. Um, But the most important place that I want to get rid of gender biases, gender-based harm, and attitudes that are harmful and dangerous is in church spaces. Because once you get that incredibly powerful normative space altered, there's a lot less work that the law has to do on the other side to force people on pain of imprisonment or other sanction or whatever it is that they're going to use um, to adhere to policies that are gender-friendly. Is there place for you in the law? Increasingly questioning that as well. Um, there's two courses open to a law graduate, or well, three, increasingly, but two mainly. You become an attorney, which is which sounds like a lot of fun, but really is just like a lot of paper pushing. Right, and don't tell my attorney friends I said this, but it really is. Um, and then there's being an advocate on the other side. Which is bringing those papers to life through oral argument. And one day I might be, I might be an advocate, but I have a I have a, horrend, I have a horrendous and profound uh, intellectual insecurities. I, 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 I revere, and I think that the work of an advocate is so incredibly important. And that it has the power to affect so many people, even when you're just dealing with one client. And I've had the privilege to be around really brilliant and smart advocates. And I don't know if I have what it takes to get to that level. What do they have? What do you see that they have that you think you don't? They're scientists, they're exact, they're precise, they are broad in thought. You know, and they can bring to bear on in one paragraph several different disciplines of law. They are well-read. They have a really, really great grounding in... I call them the liberal arts because I don't have another word for them, but they understand economics and philosophy and the arts and the world and how the world works and why that matters for the law and how to bring it to bear to the law. They have the language for it and I don't always have the language for it. Law, The practice of law, particularly as an advocate, is very vulnerable because you're presenting yourself to another person and saying, listen to me, listen to what I'm saying. I'm the one that's right. I'm the one that's correct. My understanding is the one that's correct. The people that I'm working for deserve this win better than the people on the other side. It's a very personal undertaking and a very personal endeavor. The person on the other side until we have robots making decisions is also a person and relates to you as a person and interacts with you as a person doesn't matter what people say about the impartiality of presiding officers and judges they're humans those people so it's a a very vulnerable exchange
1: and what's what's so intimidating about that vulnerability for you
0: being wrong i don't give myself a lot of grace to be wrong and i don't give myself a lot of grace to be stupid which is often how i interpret wrongness As an intellectual flaw or a failing, and not as an honest part of just learning and understanding how the world works. So then what? What do we do? Grow a pair of ovaries and keep doing it, I guess. Um, Do you want to? Is that what you want to do? I don't know what I want to do, that's the problem. But because I'm already in law, it's the path of least resistance to continue in that and become an attorney or become an advocate. You said there were three. What's the third option in your mind? Oh, the third one is to use law in other disciplines but not practice as a lawyer. So to become an academic or to use it as a grounding for further education in other disciplines and then become a policymaker or to just abandon it completely, be glad that you just have a formal education and make cookies. I don't know. But you don't actually have to use the law to practice as a lawyer. But I don't think I know how you sort of move from that. But I also don't want to feel like I tapped out, or like I just wasn't good enough, or I got beaten by the game.
1: Where are these pressures coming from? Are they external? Are they internal?
0: They are internal. So it so it comes from it comes partly from that. I don't know how to. I never learned how to drop the public face. I never learned how to drop um, Zonaka, who is me. Um, person who hangs out with the girlfriends, and you know, and Zonaka who is passionate daughter, and who is the first one.
1: What's it like being very explicit about your devotion to these institutions, but in the same breath want to tear the institution down from the inside and change it from within?
0: I think it gives. I think it gives legitimacy. a struggle when it comes from the inside because the belief is that this person doesn't hate the institution, they love it they just think that there are a few things wrong with it that should be changed and tearing it down I don't think necessarily yeah, tearing it down is not the tearing down of the concept of church as it might exist in God's mind or the concept of gender as it might have existed in God's mind, but the meanings that people have given it over time, especially insofar as they contradict the Bible. Um, The Bible imagines people who are married and single changing the world and impacting churches and their gifts being useful in the service of the church. It's not how it's preached from the pulpit there are standards or levels of spiritual actualization and the highest one is when you're married and you have a massive amount of people who are gifted and brilliant and smart and have incredible talents that they could appear that could that they could apply and give in service of the church but they can't because they don't think that they're fully people in the sense of of, of church spaces. There are topics you can't speak about. There are things you just wouldn't understand, you know? Because you're not married and you don't have children. That needs to be torn down. There's an incredible amount of racism in the church. Racism. Yes. And xenophobia. Just a fabulous amount. It's ridiculous. And... In many, in many, many spaces, such as slavery, that's how racism in those spaces started, the belief that God had created some more superior to others, you know, that needs to be torn down. So the meanings that people have attributed to the Bible over time because of lazy exposition or self-interest, those need to be torn down. The concept of a church that is capable of racism, that is capable of squashing um, rape cases that turns a blind eye to violations, that is quiet on social issues, despite being the normative force behind the, some of those issues, that must go. That needs to end. And I, and I, and I don't want to have to tear it down from the outside. You know, I'd much rather say I'm a church person, I'm a woman of faith, I've seen these things, they're not working, I work in law, you're going to get into trouble at some point if you don't fix this this is how you address and this is how you deal with it
1: what does it feel like to be critical about institutions
0: that are so widely praised freeing extremely freeing the worst part of my life and this applies to relationships with other people and institutions is where I just have an unquestioning adoration and belief in a particular space or in a particular person. Because that person can do whatever the hell they want to do to you, that institution can do whatever the hell they want to do to you, and you will grin and bear it because you think that the institution can't be questioned. So I will never be afraid or cautious. I would rather go too far, have a Damascus Road moment later on, and then say, oh snap, I was wrong, I'm sorry about that. But the privilege of being able to think freely and to critique and to have the space to do so, and luckily my parents are very supportive of it, and to say, I gents, this doesn't sound right, that for me is incredibly freeing. I don't think I'm a special case in any shape or form, and I don't think I'm a minority either. It does seem to be coming very much from black people and people of color who are very much at the intersection of oppression on both political and civil grounds and non-religious grounds as well, and who are pushing back and saying, I, God, we're very glad that you love us, but we want the land. You know, we're very glad that you promised us Jerusalem, but there are people who are living in Jerusalem while we're here. We would like that as well. So no, no, I, I'm, not, I'm not the only one, not by a long shot.
1: Mm-hmm. Our We Our work forms part of a long-term research project that documents career experiences and labor market practices in South Africa. If you would like to participate in the research going forward, visit arewearework.com to find out how you can share your work-related experiences. This episode was created and produced by me, Tiffany Ibrahim. Sound and editing by Dean Salant. Recording support by Yogan Sullivan. The music is by Voom Levin and can be found on his album called "In Motion." The episode cover was designed and illustrated by Lauren Mulligan. To stay up to date on the podcast and future episodes, follow RWR work on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening.